Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Today on the Focus on Why podcast, I am joined by Kevin Whelan. Kevin, welcome. Hello and good afternoon. Nice to talk to you. It's great having you here and I am really keen to share with everybody what it is you do and why you do it. So let's get started. Kevin. Let's get straight into it. (laughs) (laughs) What is it you do? Do you know, I spend my whole life trying to encourage people to stop trading time for money under the illusion of security that it gives, and instead to build assets so they can be financially independent for the rest of their life. And a few years spent doing that can compensate for a lifetime of being unsecure or insecure, particularly in times like now, when so many people are in furlough, so many people fearful of their jobs, but creating financial independence, which is a real skill, something once it's achieved, people never look back. And why do you do that? Well, the reason why I do it is because I was touched by the very opposite of that. And uh, that comes back a little, really, to, wow, I mean, many years ago now, when I was 25, actually, my father, um, who was a businessman, North Sea oil rig worker, had a very good business there, unfortunately collapsed and died of a heart attack on the rig. They couldn't fly him off, and he simply died there. Now, that's tragic in itself, and nobody really wants to hear too much about a sad tale about a dad dying young. However, the consequence was we thought we're all going to be okay as a family. You know, the business is good. Everything's going to be taken care of. But unfortunately, like many busy business owners, he didn't take care of stuff. And that's stuff like doing a will, leaving life cover to pay off a mortgage, you know, having somebody to look after the business if he didn't make it. And unfortunately, his exit strategy from the business wasn't a clear one. When he died, the business died. And as a result, the family pretty much financially imploded. And that wasn't a good place to be. And I know if he was looking back, he would wish he'd done better. He did a great job bringing in money, but he didn't do a good job of protecting it. And that was my big issue. And I suppose ever since then, I've encouraged anybody with the family to take care of those things. But it came more to my mind, I think, when between the ages of 25, so I did a degree in economics and um, wanted to be one of these fancy economists who's always right and always wrong, equally at the same time, you know, um, smart guy. But I found in the banking industry, I was bored. You know, just, I didn't enjoy it. And I began to reflect a bit in that period of boredom, thinking, you know, if I go at the same time as the old man, and we were really, you know, honestly, Amy, genetically cut from the same cloth. You know, we looked the same, we walked the same, we talked the same, we're both Newcastle United supporters, as mad as we were, and uh, completely, and I thought, crumbs, probably a louder word than that, or a worse word than that. If I go when he goes, or when, and I was planning to get married in that sort of years, and talk to my intended wife about it I thought I can't save enough money 
to give her and the kids that I now have, three kids all grown up now, just couldn't do it. And I sort of made an economics decision that working for somebody else probably wasn't for me and therefore set myself a trail to learn how I could build things, how I could own things that would generate income for me so that if I was around or not, whether I showed up or didn't show up, the money still would. And I've spent the last 30 years doing that and have mastered that skill. And, you know, financial independence has been mine for many, many years now, but I spend my life now teaching others. And I have a great business that helps people do that with coaches and books and videos and a really elegant step-by-step -step process for people to follow because I think being financially independent is a much safer place than relying on somebody else to provide you with what you need. So with that in mind, let's take you back to where you were when you made that decision at the age of, was it 25, 29? When well, was 25 it? is when he died. I was 25. Um, I'd spent my kind of university years looking at working in banks and I'd been spending time working for Barclays, working for Yorkshire Bank. And um, I got, as, a, as I say, fed up with that and um, just made the decision really not to do that, that although many people can have a successful career in, in banking and those sorts of things and build a long-term pension, I just didn't see the pension as my exit route, you know, it just, uh, I didn't see the idea of doing that. And I think also I'm pretty much a, a bit of a rebel, you know, probably didn't enjoy being told what to do. So creating my own path was much more fun. And now I enjoy it so much more. And can you, taking yourself back to that point in your life, can you remember how you felt making that decision? Yeah, I can actually. Um, I can remember a heady mix, a mixture of being kind of excited, a um, mixture of being a little bit scared. And, um, but I think I did it at the right time because I was young, I was still single, wasn't married yet. And the date I really stopped working and trading time for money was 18th of August, 1988. So I remember the day. And I made that decision and my wife backed me. I said, you know, if I'm going to do this, Sarah, I need to do it now. Because if we, you know, have kids and I get stuck into that place where, you know, I have to stay with the job, I'm going to regret that. So, why, you know, why don't we give it a go, you know, I've, I can always get a job. I've still got my degree. I can still do what I need to do if I have to do it. And just, you know, I just uh, had the feeling once I made the decision, I felt relieved. Uh, I felt in a place of almost like I'm now in charge. And I like that feeling a lot. And I've had that feeling ever since. And I just love it. And why that date? Because that date's got a lot of eights in it, and eights are a very good number for a while. I really don't know. I, I think I think it wasn't necessarily the. I mean, it's an odd day as well. I think it was a Thursday, if I look back. Um, it's just an odd day. I think I wanted to give in the notice. Yeah. You know, and the best day to give notice is a Friday. I think. <laughs> no, I, I I really don't know, but but I think you know it's a good day if there's a day. It was if it was the eighth of the eighth, nineteen eighty eight. 
I guess, you know, all the Chinese characters would have been smiling on me, but uh, I don't think it had anything to do with that, to be honest. <laughs> Fair enough. So looking back to that moment and making those decisions, and you, uh, that decision, and you, you knew that it was going to be scary, but it was the right decision because you knew why you were doing it. You had a, yeah. a strong why. Yeah. How did you then start to build that business? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I didn't really know what business I would be in. But I thought there were a combination of things that I really loved. I loved finance. I liked money. And, um, and I liked the idea of, of really trying to work to educate as well. Because I remember back probably when I originally went to university, um, I was kind of half thinking I'd be a lecturer. I liked the idea of educating. I had a really great economics teacher as a kid who was an author. He was enthusiastic. You know, he fired me up. I kind of like that. So I've always thought, you know, that's a also a good thing to be inspired by somebody and also secretly be an author, um, you know, which obviously I'll tell you a bit more about that if you ask. Yeah, that was the the key issue. So I kind of thought, well, what could I do? And um, I was living in South London at the time. So I knocked on all the big high street insurance companies, um, which was a lot of them way back then. Uh, legal in general, Hill Samuel, and a bunch of others, Prudential. And I said, look, you don't know me, but I'm a bright bloke and I work hard. Would you give me an opportunity to get into the insurance business to be a broker? Yeah, and they all offered me the position. Um, it was all self-employed then. I think, frankly, I thought I was doing well, but I think it was easy to get the position because you were on commission only, really, at the time. And so, so legal in general were the firm I chose, and they gave me a really good grounding. And for about five or six years, I kind of worked under their wing and just learned how to get a, I suppose, get a good foundation of knowledge. And then later went on to build a mortgage broking business um, that still goes to this day, and then an IFA business, and then uh, you know, other businesses that radiate around that from a small legal practice and a number of things. But they're all businesses that touch people when they're building their decisions around money. And I think that combination of enthusiasm to help people, a strong reason why. And um, really, and I think the reason why it propelled me so far forward, that nothing was going to stop me. Because I wish I'd had the mentor, I wish I'd had a guide. But while I might have had that at school, I didn't have that as a grown-up. And now I like to act as that guide or mentor for others. And I get a big kick out of that. And it gives me probably the most satisfaction I can get is seeing people transform from being like me, a little bit scared, a little bit excited. But when they let excitement win and they do something about it, that, that gives me the greatest satisfaction. So why is it your looking at spending so much time helping people become completely financially independent what what exactly do you want to achieve with that well i mean there's a self-serving objective of course which is if you think about the idea of people are on a journey to financial independence it's going to take them some years normally five to seven years so you're building good relationships and of course from a business point of view there are many things you can help them do along the way, including things like making sure their loved ones are protected, making sure they've made wills, making sure they've um, done something positive with things they overlook, helping them understand uh, different 
ways they can build assets. And uh, creating a business to support that does two things. One, it keeps me on my my game because t- things are always changing. Just look around what's happening now. And secondly, the longer that you provide a service to people, it helps them because it know, you know they know you're focused on them. And it keeps you always looking to add more value. So it kind of keeps you in, in, in a loop of integrity and good relationships. And I think as other people would speak of me, they would say unimpeachable integrity, somebody who just wants to do what's best for me. Nobody, nobody ever says he's looking to sell me anything. They feel it's natural. So what they get is what they need. And my team who kind of over the years have come to support that all come from the same place. And in fact, we've created our own declaration of independence, our own document that spells out some of our core values, which includes sharing integrity, uh, humility to accept advice and to be willing to give it. And um, just as importantly, building wisdom and passing it on to the next generation rather than just building money. So a combination of all those things is really where I come from. And I'm happy to be in that space, even though financially I don't need to be doing it. I just enjoy doing it so much that, um, as my wife says, you'll never retire because you enjoy what you're doing so much. So retirement doesn't mean that, like, I'm not going to be put out to pasture, Amy. They're going to have to drag me out of there or I'll get bored one day. But I don't see that coming any day soon. And you mentioned that you you thought you might be a lecturer. I mean, do you not see your role at the moment as that, but just not in a, a formal institution? That's a very smart point. I think my lecturing comes from a number of activities. One is I speak. I love delivering messages because you can see the power of transformation. When an idea penetrates somebody's head and they get into that, then you know that that's really cool. And also. I do my own podcast and I've written three books and I love creating content. So I suppose I'm a teacher, but I'm a teacher of grown-ups. I'm not a teacher of kids, right? So um, yeah, it's all good fun. So when you say a teacher of sort of grown-ups, why is it that we do not have this knowledge? Wow, that's a huge question. I mean, that's a podcast on its own. I think a combination of reasons. I think firstly, the whole educational system is predicated on the idea that we should all study hard, work hard. By the way, study hard and work hard on our own, not in collaboration with others, which is really not the right thing. And the educational system is geared towards really an outcome which is outdated, which is to help people get jobs. And I think nothing wrong with the job. I'm certainly not criticizing job holders. I'm just saying job holding is a weak place for security and that entrepreneurship would be a better thing to teach but it's not on the curriculum. There is no such teaching on the the state affair. You simply cannot get um, you know that kind of education. And that's the first thing, I think. The educational system stacks it up. The second is, I suppose really creativity gets stifled as well when you're when you see school is always about doing what you do on your own, passing exams working on your own, almost you can imagine being at school and you have your hand over your work so nobody can see, you know, you remember that? Um, and I think there isn't really the skill taught of how to work in collaboration with others. And I think wealth, certainly from my experience, is almost always a collaborative skill, bringing of leverage of two people, bringing of 
the dynamics of two different perspectives or three different perspectives or four different perspectives. And it's when you get all of those things coming into play is when you get the most powerful outcomes. So I think there are a couple of reasons, you know, and one of them is the school system. And given that you're seeing transformations of people that wish they'd known this sooner in their lives, is it yeah. not a target audience for you to get to people sooner? Great question. Um, I think we do give back. Um, we're looking to mentor homeless people um, with a charity that we're working with to sort of help guide people where they perhaps had uh, poor schooling or for whatever reason have been disadvantaged. And uh, we want to give some help. So that's something we're doing. And the second thing is um, we're looking to create a young entrepreneurial um, foundation to encourage the youth, um, particularly of our clients, because I mentioned earlier, we like to encourage the passing on of wisdom. And with that wisdom, we encourage the kids to get involved in things like kids are so smart. Like uh, I'll give you a couple of examples. So when we're working with families to create their wealth, we ask them to pretend it's a business. Uh, we call it their family wealth business. And we ask them to give it a name and to involve the kids in the choosing of the name and the choosing of the color and the choosing of an emblem. And it's very powerful because then the parents are starting to share information with the kids and the kids are getting it. I spoke to one of my clients who said to me, Kevin, you won't believe it. You will not believe it. My 13-year-old, I barely get two words out of him. I talked to him about what you said. We sat down over dinner. We worked out what the family logo would be, and he never shut up for two hours. You know, so your the creativity of kids is in there, uh, and we like to try and help get that out, not just in terms of the family name, but also to give them some things to do. You know, like um, like I used to get my kids to sell stuff. You know, you maybe don't remember Musical Magpie or whatever it was called. We used to sell old CDs and we'd use that money to help them build premium bonds or something, you know, that they could see would be a value. And now my kids look always looking for my wife on what's the best phone deal, what's the best deal uh, you can get for uh, energy because they're so technologically friendly and the society's like that. But uh, us older folks are, you know, getting left behind as we often do with technology. So you can bring kids into it in so many ways. So yes, I think you're right, but I'd rather do it with the families that we're influencing as opposed to a wider message to schools, which perhaps when the curriculum isn't ready for change, there'd be more resistance rather than encouragement. Absolutely. I mean, the, the support that going through the existing converted people, as you would say, that they're already on board with it. It makes a lot of sense. And it is it is a, something you're creating. You're creating a legacy for forever because of the way that you can structure these the wealth that you've got, which is just incredible because a lot of people don't realize the different structures that they they have existing and how it can be changed to being so much more productive for future generations. I mean, if you look back. I think they're, they're each different country has got language for what normally happens. In this country, I think, and in the US, we call it shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. Other countries call it clogs to clogs in three generations. In other words, you know, somebody's the pioneer and builds some wealth in the family. The next generation get to enjoy it, but they take it for granted. They just enjoy the money. The third get a little bit left of the money. And then by the next generation, the money's all gone. 
So I think that's a challenge that we set for people to involve the kids as early as possible so they feel a sense of connection. And by creating a family trust with rules in the trust, for example, in my trust, we have <clears throat> a all expenses paid family holiday for the whole family every two years. No refunds or substitutions. You come on the holiday or you don't. But the idea is to get them to see there's a connection between creating a family trust fund and their enjoyment. And some of my families have created things like um, beneficial payments when uh, people have children so they can have a car that fits, you know, putting a child in and out, that they can have other things they need to do like holidays or like prams and pushchairs and stuff. But the idea is to try and encourage the next generation, not just to take the money, but to feel a connection to the whole ethos to expand it for the generation after that. So rather than the money gradually diminishing, that all generations feel part of a trust that they feel almost indebted and encouraged to want to expand and grow it. It's very nice when it works. Absolutely, yeah. And, and you're essentially, you're, you're asking people to have uncomfortable conversations now to make them comfortable for generations to come. Well, that's certainly true, and uncomfortable decisions now. Um, as I said earlier, a few years spent creating financial independence means you're set fair, independent of whatever happens to the economy, independent of what happens to your employer, independent of what happens in the world, whether there's a pandemic or not, or whether the stock market goes up or down. You know, if you create that bulletproof position, and in my teachings and workings, there are only seven ways you can do it. There are only seven things you can own that can put money in your life. And it's quite easy to learn them. And there aren't eight, there are only seven. So, and that's been tested. <clears throat> I have a standing thing going out there, Amy, which says, if anybody can give me number eight, I call them pillars. If you imagine a building with a good foundation, seven strong, robust pillars and a roof perched on the top, I'd be thrilled if somebody could give me pillar number eight and that would uh, you know, make that, make that building even stronger, right? But I haven't found it, but I have found seven. And that's what we teach in our program is how to build seven robust flows of multiple streams of income flowing into your life so that you know, you're safe no matter what. And I think that's why I enjoy teaching it. And again, as a teacher, you, know, you, you create something that's easy to share with people as well. So you teach how and, and the what, and obviously you delve into the why. We do. The seven pillars, is that something you can share with me now or is that something you share, you share on the, the teaching? Oh, I can easily share them with you. I mean, I can get three done really quickly because most people will identify it, right? So there are three things that most people, I would say 95% of the population do not achieve financial independence. And what I mean by that is enough money coming into their life that will give them the life that they want, the lifestyle that they want with no compromises. And it would happen automatically. So most people try to do it with three assets. Number one, the home they live in, which they think is an asset, but rarely provides income. Number two is a pension, <clears throat> normally a personal one or a work one, but um, just like teaching is not done so good on, on wealth at school, there's certainly no teaching going on in the world of pensions. Most people's relationship with their pension is pretty uncomfortable. You know, they look at a statement, 
each year. Wish it were better. Put it back in the drawer. Um, it's well organized because it's in a drawer, but that's about as far as it goes. And then the third is investing money in the stock market. And the big challenge with all of those three, which are the first three, they've all got real strong power if you unlock the power, but most people sit on them. You know, they sit in the home, hope they'll downsize one day. They sit on their pension, hope it's going to be okay one day. And they invest in the stock market, hoping that the day they need the money is the day the stock market is up, not the day the stock market crashes. And this is a problem. So when you've got uncertain assets, which are in markets where you're not adding any value, it's hard to create a future of certainty when the value and the flow of income from those is so uncertain which is why we teach the other four, which are what we would call the entrepreneurial pillars. And I mean an entrepreneur because an entrepreneur is focused on creating value for others. And when you create value for others, it can be demonstrated in four other ways. So pillar number four then is a portfolio of property. So you're building rooms and houses and, and land and other things which generate a rental income and providing great accommodation for others, a business that is an enterprise that works without you. So creating a business that creates value for others, ideally on a recurring income basis, so recurring value to your customer base, ideally so it doesn't depend on you being there. So you, know, you can take the time off and ideally in a niche that's very easy to identify that people can see that you're standing out in that field. And if you combine those three things, you pretty much got a business that you could sell or you could keep whatever you chose. The next one, number six, intellectual property. Now, we've all got intellectual property. If we're trading time for money, the challenge with it is it's almost always too low a price and we're normally giving it away. If you think about a job, easy way to calculate the value of your IP is to take a salary divided by two. I'll give you an example. If I say to someone, let's check the value of your IP. What's your salary? Let's say it's a friendly conversation. 50 grand. Okay. Most people work about 2,000 hours a year, approximately, in round numbers. So if you divide 2,000 into 50,000, you get 25. So you're getting 25 pounds an hour for your IP, but you're giving your IP away. You don't own the IP, you've given it to your employer. So what we try and pe encourage people to do is to crystallize the value of their IP by capturing it in books or courses or speaking or their business or, uh, you know, obviously people know about IP because of books and royalties and things. Um, so, you know, it's easy to create that or even a, a pathway that you know, you've helped people move from where they are now to where they want to be, and you can show that you've helped them transform, then you can create IP around that. You could create, create membership courses or training courses. And everybody's standing on a mountain of IP. They just, because they're standing on it, they really undervalue it. So that's number six. And number seven is joint ventures, which means instead of doing all the work yourself, you're now sharing in that with somebody else. So you're collaborating either as a funder of property opportunities, as a joint venture owner of property or business, or you can become a collaborator with others. So you actually form a business 
with others who've got different skill sets to you. So you might have, you know, great people skills, but somebody else got great financial skills. There's always a combination of leverage uh, that works, leverage of finance, leverage of intellect, leverage of relationship or time. These are the things that can come in play. And for the most part, when people are not wealthy yet, is because they're missing a form of leverage. Because they don't have it on their own, they don't often think about going to somebody else to plug the gap. Is that a helpful kind of description of it? Fabulous. Thank you. I, there's a couple of things I want to pick up on there. The first one is, what is your definition of wealth? Um, well, that's not really a definition I can give you because it's a personal definition. And what I've found it to be, though, is a combination of freedoms. And those freedoms I could reasonably articulate as freedom of time, of money, of relationship, of creativity, of location, and of purpose. So some combination of those things is at the heart of what wealth means. And money is the fuel to bring that why to life. So those combination of freedoms, that's unique to you, that's unique to me, that's unique to everyone. That's what wealth really means. It's the ability to allow that to happen uh, automatically so that your purpose, for example, many people, once they become financially independent, discover a new purpose because they're no longer trading their time for money, so their time becomes more precious, which they will often spend making an impact either in their family life or in the world. And I think that's very true, which is why when people touch their purpose and they've got enough money to live the life that they want, their purpose comes out more. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier being an author and what have you written about and why was it important for you to get that intellectual property out into the world? Yes, I've written three books. Uh, the first one, Save a Fortune Fast how to completely eliminate your mortgage loans and credit cards. And I wrote that book in 2004. And I wrote it because I get on my soapbox a lot. Um, I don't like injustice. And I saw banks, credit card companies charging fortunes for people who simply fell into the trap of thinking I can afford the payments, but they really couldn't afford the long-term cost. I kind of set up a program to help people find a way to completely eliminate the cards, consumer debt, and to eliminate their mortgage in the fastest space of time possible so that at least it gave them the best chance to become financially independent themselves because they were free of the huge cost, the, the, the chain, the ball and chain that is the cost of debt. And I coined the term, your debt-free day, the day that you own everything and own nothing. And I had people kind of identifying with that, putting their date they intended to be debt-free on their fridge doors and all sorts of things. It was quite fascinating. And that's what gave me the bug for, you know, writing some things. When the mood takes me, I don't enjoy the writing process so much, but I enjoy the intellectual process of thinking about the solution. The second book was The Seven Pillars of Wealth, which I've just described to you. Um, including my own reason for embarking on it, thinking it through, explaining what the seven ways are, explaining the forms of leverage and a whole bunch of things in between. And then just recently, I co-authored a book, actually, 
with um, a very famous business coach. And the purpose of that book, which is called The Wealth Coach, is now it's my homage back to my dad. It's to say, business owners fall into traps. They get caught in traps of that they create for themselves. Being busy in business stops them from taking care of themselves, their families, and their wealth. And this book was designed to help people, help business owners understand that. And do you think, had your father not died when he died, that you would have created this world for yourself? Probably not. Probably not. I think I would have got certainly cheesed off with work pretty quickly. I would have probably proud a different furrow. No idea what that would have been, frankly. Um, it probably would have been in some form of education, um, I guess. But I think... Yeah, I think the realisation of not wanting to be 46 years old and not around um, was my big drive. And I think we never know. I mean, life is like a little bag of tail, isn't it? You get nudged on the shoulder by something and that moves you in another direction. That was a big punch. Yeah, that was a big one. But who knows where, what would have happened if he'd not gone, where that nudge would have come from to take me on a different destiny. But, But I think... I found my right path and I'm happy I'm in it. And you've had this incredible relationship with money. I know a lot of people struggle with money and have lots of limiting beliefs and stories. How do you help people overcome their relationships with money? The relationship with money really often stems from their relationship with history. You know, they look back and see what their father did, what their mother did and they kind of get trapped in repeating the same pattern. And the real way to overcome it, to change the relationship with anything, to change the relationship with our health, with our weight, with our attitude, is often to really refocus on the reason why. So you can change your relationship by having an unstoppable reason why. And I think I would encourage everybody to reconnect with that. And if they do, they'll find something that will give them a good enough reason. And some people will never find it, you know, and they'll become what I call the drifters in life who would wish things were better, but aren't willing to pay the price to change it. Or they'll DIY it. I was a DIYer for a long time. Had to do it myself. I didn't have a guide. I didn't have a mentor. There wasn't a path well trodden ahead of me. I had to forge that path. And luckily for me, I was strong enough. But now I see people think that having somebody else in their life helping them is a sign of weakness back to that educational thing again and they'd rather do something on their own learn everything on their own and do everything on their own and think that anybody else involved is a cost so i'd look at that and see if they were doing that and say well look if you're building the house of your dreams and i give you permission right here right now to think of what the house of your dreams would look like what would it look like They'll tell you that. And I say, how many people do you think would it take to do that? And they kind of list, well, I need a builder, I need an architect, I'd need a plumber, an electrician. And they wouldn't hesitate. They wouldn't build a whole building entirely on their own with a few tools. You know, they'd know instinctively that they would need to hire somebody to do a good job. And the challenge, I think, with, with most people's wealth is they don't realize they are the architect. They are the owner. And they are the builder. 
but they don't see it. So they try and shortcut their way to building wealth and it can't be done. And it's interesting that you use that phrase that you you give them permission to, to get that vision. It's as though they almost don't allow themselves to do it themselves on their own. Well, I think that's the skill of a good mentor, you know, that's willing to ask, as you said earlier on, that tough question. And it takes an open mind to allow the question to penetrate. And equally, you, you, I have met people and you can't help everyone, right? You just have to know that. And immediately I can tell, more often than not as men um, who almost like won't let you in. Um, they're not complacent, but they're sort of arrogant and they, they just don't want to admit they don't know enough. And rather than be open to learn, they would rather be closed-minded. And that's, that's the sad one for me. And it's a difficult one. I've long stopped fighting. Um, I can tell within five, 10 minutes whether someone's a drifter, a DIYer, or a delegator, or sometimes just a ditherer. But I can tell who's who. And the ones that I will resonate with, I will help. And those who don't, I will just say, you know what? I don't think we're a right fit. And here's the reason why. And I think if you have that belief, it will cause you a problem in the future. But that's up to you. And you don't have to resonate with me. But please find somebody. And you also mentioned when you were talking about the seven pillars that there's a future of certainty once you've got these in place. Mm -hmm. Share with me what that looks like for some of your clients. Um, most would say that they're a bit skeptical at the beginning, um, but they all set a, a target. They all set an objective. And the two objectives we ask them to set are one, what is the level of income you need to become financially secure? That means to pay your bills so that the need for the job isn't there. And on average, that number is about £4,000 a month across the board, it doesn't matter what the number is, there's no competition, there's no race, everybody's different. And the figure for complete financial independence, life completely on your terms, no compromises, the life you wanna lead, the way you wanna lead it, on average about 10,000 a month. My experience is when people get to their level of financial independence, they have become transformed on the journey and they are different people completely than what they were at the outset. So it's not the destination, that's the key, it's the transformation on the journey. And when they reach it, they just keep going because there's no reason to stop. And then they move forward and they want to do other things and almost always their, their true purpose starts to shine through. And that's what I like. Yeah, I can definitely resonate with a lot of what you're saying because in the last few years, taking control of my life and moving from existing to living, which is what I call it as a, okay. a midlife beginner. <laughs> uh, I believe it's never too late to be what you might have been. And, you know, I'm living proof that you can totally turn things around the way you, you, you I had no idea that I could imagine life being as it is now. And so I'm, I'm a big advocate of what you do and how you do it massively. It's fantastic helping people to become completely financially independent, but also, as you said, seeing them grow as, as a person and changing their mindset is, is, a, is a fantastic thing to watch. Well, when you really get to know people, I mean, I'll give you an example, which, you know, tugged at my heartstrings a lot. And it does from time to time. Anyway, when I tell the story of my dad, which may have come across, but the um, client of mine called Chris, 
uh, I helped him, worked with him about, for about six years. And um, he was a, an ex-banker and uh, but very proud Yorkshireman, you know, thought he knew a lot. Took him about a year to open the door, but he opened the door and he told me the story. He's got a daughter who has uh, cystic fibrosis. And he said, you know, Kevin, I don't know if you know what that means. He said, but she lives her life as if she's breathing through a straw. And you can imagine what that must be like in COVID. And it's not a long life giver. You know, she'll be in her 40s, probably at best. And his power and passion was to focus on that financial independence while he was young enough. So that part of his legacy wasn't to wait till he was 65 to retire from the bank, but to be able to retire at 53 and provide a future property and a lifestyle to share the time with his daughter while she was still young. I thought that's fantastic. And that's, that's really what it does. You know, it's really quite powerful. But a lot of people come to me when they think they're too old. You know, and they say, am I too old? I go, no, it takes three to five years to get to security, five to seven years on average to get to independence. Tell me, you're going to live five years? Go, yeah, well, then you can make it, you know. And then if you, most people are living to their, what, 80s now, mid 80s, then you've got a long time ahead of you, hopefully. So a few years spent now will make the world of difference in the future. So, yes, it's tough because you've got so much baggage, you know, you're carrying so much behind you. But if you can park that, just put it down. Let's understand where you are and let's try and set what your new objectives are and we'll get you there. But you've just got to put in the work, but we'll give you the step-by-step roadmap to follow. Kind of a wealth sat-nav, really. Most people follow it. And some people get stuck. Some people get sidetracked and derailed. That's normal. Uh, Some people will give up. Uh, but then that comes back down to the reason why again. Mm, absolutely. So looking backwards, looking forwards in all directions, but you're giving them the right compass. Absolutely. That Well, that's a good way of framing it, I think. Yeah, fantastic. Well, it's been great having you on the show, Kevin. I've really enjoyed taking me through the pillars, just understanding what it is you're doing and more importantly, why you're doing that, because it's, it's all about people. It always comes back to people, doesn't it? Every business is all about who you can help. I couldn't agree with you more and you say it well as if you're part of the program itself. <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you for coming on and have you got a final message? My final message would be, do you remember I said how, you know, kids have got creativity and when we're at school, we had that creativity, but we lose it over time. I would encourage you right now to seek out my very first ROI. Now, most people think ROI from an economist, that's got to mean return on investment, but it doesn't mean that. It means be curious out there. Look for that one relationship, that one opportunity, that one idea, ROI, that can transform your thinking and help you on your path to wealth. And I encourage people to do that every single day. And that's why I never get bored with this, because every day I get to meet new people and get to share the message all over again and see how it gets received by someone. And you've been great at receiving it and sharing it. And I thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star Apple podcast review. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook, and become a member of my inspiring, uplifting, and positive Focus on Why Facebook group. 
I help people to focus on their why with clarity, uniting their passion with their purpose with a plan to create the life they truly desire. If you would like me to help you focus on your why, then please book a free 20-minute coaching call via candidly.com forward slash Amy Rowlandson. And if you haven't already, please sign up for the Friday Focus weekly newsletter via my website, amyrowlandson.com. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.